Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday, December 20th, 2022 episode of The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is Myra Melford. Throughout her life in music, the pianist, keyboardist, and composer Myra Melford has pursued a creative vision that is both wholly distinctive and all-embracing. Composition and improvisation interact seamlessly and ingeniously in her work, one side strengthening the other. Guided by that same compelling spirit, divergent idioms and eras coalesce. From jazz, blues, and global folk styles to various corners of the classical tradition and the avant-garde. Extra musical influences, for instance, the poetry of Rumi, or the spirituality of Indian meditation, yoga, and the Huaki Indians of Mexico, have also figured into the mix. In the end, Melford's efforts are probably best served by labels like contemporary music, new music, and other tags that signify artistic freedom and daring more than any boundaries of a genre. A look at Melford's current schedule bears out these notions of openness and imagination. <clears throat> Her quintet, Snowy Egret, has featured several of today's most brilliant improvisers, cornetist Ron Miles, guitarist Liberty Elman, bass guitarist Stomu Takeishi, and drummer and MacArthur Fellow Taishan Sori, taking on Melford's challenging yet often exuberant music. On two acclaimed releases, 2018's The Other Side of Air, and the band's 2015 self-titled debut, a vast swath of concepts and strategies are in play. Hard angled counterpoint, grooving rhythms, 
free playing, beautiful melody and harmony through composition, swaying and other elements appear and then dissipate as the ensemble reconfigures in varying combinations and digs into the material with an intuitive sense of interplay. In Tiger Trio, with flautist Nicole Mitchell and bassist Yoel Leandre, Melford probes the depths of free improvisation, delving into each and every aesthetic between the meditative and the fierce. Another tri- tri- triumvirate of fearless female improvisers, MZM, features Melford on acoustic and prepared piano, Mia Masaoka on koto, and Zena Parkins on electric harp and electronics. Their self-titled debut came out in 2017. The prior year, Tiger Trio offered Unleashed, and Melford and the clarinetist Ben Goldberg introduced Dialogue, a stunning, versatile account of their ongoing duo collaboration of the same name. Melford continues to grow in concert as a solo pianist, a discipline she began exploring in earnest after the release of 2013's Penetrating Life Carries Me This Way. Beyond her life in the studio and on stage, Melford has become a dedicated and influential educator. She relocated to the Bay Area from New York in 2004 to join the music department at the University of California, Berkeley. As a professor of composition and improvisational practices, she's pursued a philosophy that honors jazz and new music traditions while emphasizing ongoing developments in music, musical technique, theory, technology, and performance. In 2013, she received a Doris Duke residency to build demand for the arts via San Francisco's Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. There, she facilitated forward-looking events like the New Frequencies Fest and her own Language of Dreams, inspired by Uruguayan writer Eduardo Galeno, and incorporating multilingual narration, dance, and video facets. Melford has shaped a similarly ambitious interdisciplinary project Knock on the Sky at the Walter Arts Center in Minneapolis in 2006. Currently, she's expanding the scope of programming at UC Berkeley's based organization, Cal Performances. Born in 1957 and raised near Chicago, Melford's early tutelage included both classical training and the Windy City blues and boogie-woogie she absorbed through her first piano teacher, Erwin Helfer. She became introduced to jazz during college in Olympia, Washington, and later studied under Art Land and Gary Peacock in Seattle before heading east. Based first in Boston, she took ear training lessons with Rand Blake and prepared for graduate school at the New England Conservatory. Though she applied to and was accepted into the New England Conservatory, Melford chose instead to venture to New York. Once immersed in the city that nurtured Cecil Taylor, Ornette Coleman, and her other avant-jazz beacons, 
she started making her own vital contributions to the burgeoning downtown scene. <clears throat> in these formative years, she participated in a workshop and other situations with Leroy Jenkins, which allowed her to engage directly with the AACM legacy, whose impact on Melford was life-changing. She also studied piano with Jackie Byard and Don Pullen, studied composition with Henry Threadgill, another of her absolute creative lodestars, and began a decade-long tenure in ensembles led by conduction innovator Butch Morris that included European tours and inventive theater works in New York. In projects led by Fred Frith and in John Zorn's game pieces, Melford furthered her abilities and understanding as an improviser. In 1989, a solo performance, Some Kind of Blues, masterfully blended her Chicago roots with aspects of the classical and jazz avant-garde and was included on volume two of the Knitting Factory's influential live compilation series. The pianist's first real working band was a trio that appeared on her leader debut, Jump, in 1990. With Lindsay Horner and Reggie Nicholson, Melford established a searching democratic take on jazz piano trio language that she continued to investigate over three more albums and a robust touring schedule. Melford formed her extend, extended ensemble by adding alto saxophonist and clarinetist Marty Ehrlich and trumpeter Dave Douglas to the trio, and that lineup released Even the Sounds Shine in 1995. By then, Melford had already begun thinking about, it, about new ensemble formats and personnel that could bring to life her progressing ideas about composition, particularly her concepts bridging exploratory jazz and chamber ensemble terrain. That vehicle ending up being the same river twice, featuring Melford, Douglas, Chris Speed on saxophone and clarinet. Michael Sarin on drums, and cellist Eric Friedlander, whose flexible instrument could fulfill bass functions or act more melodically alongside the horns. The band released a self-titled album in 1996, following it up in 1999 with Above Blue. Also in 1999, the collective trio equal interest with Melford, Jenkins on violin and viola, and Joseph Jarman on alto saxophone, flute, and oboe released a self-titled album, Equal Interest, to which all three members contributed compositions, enabled Melford to continue delving into her idea of chamber improvisations in the company of musicians she considered mentors and heroes. The band came to be after Melford met Jarman through her membership in the Musicians of Brooklyn Initiative and began studying Aikido at his dojo in the borough. On the pathway to another of her landmark working groups, Be Bread, she released albums by Myra Melford's Crush with Takeishi and drummer Kenny Wollinson and Myra Melford and the Tent, a quintet featuring Speed, Takeishi, Volenson and trumpeter Juan Vu. 
A 2000 Fulbright scholarship provided Melford with the opportunity to study the harmonium in North India for nine months, and that journey informed the early music of Be Bread, whose 2006 debut, The Image of Your Body, presented the lineup of Melford, Takeishi, drummer Elliot, Humberto Cavi, and either Vu or guitarist and banjoist Brandon Ross. While B. Bread worked live in divergent sizes and formats, its 2010 album, The Whole Tree Gone, was written as an acoustic suite for Sextet. Melford, Vu, Goldberg, Ross, Takeishi, and drummer Matt Wilson after the composer received a commission from Chamber Music America's New York Jazz Works program. Almost concurrent to B. Bread, Melford performed with Trio M, the egalitarian unit of Melford, Wilson, and bassist Mark Dresser. As in equal interest, all three members wrote for the group, and as with Melford's premier piano trio, Trio M, strove to reach new levels of parody and communicative intuition for an improvising collective. Scattered throughout her 20-plus album discography are stirring duo sessions with Han Benink, Marty Ehrlich, Tanya Kalamanovich, Satoko Fuji, and the Australian pianist Alistair Spence. Melford and Spence's 2014 collaboration, Everything Here is Possible, won the Australian Art Music Award for Excellence in Jazz. Along the way, Melford has received some of the most prestigious honors in contemporary music, including numerous downbeat pole placings, a 12 2012 Herb Alpert Award in the Arts for Music, and in 2013, a Guggenheim Fellowship and the Doris Duke Performing Artist Award. In 2016, Snowy Egret was named Midsize Ensemble of the Year in the Jazz Journalists Association's Annual Jazz Awards. More recently, Melford was commissioned by the San Francisco Contemporary Music Players to helm a largely improvisational 30-minute piece for an 11-piece ensemble electronics and Melford as soloist. Melford's press has been plentiful and glowing. Perhaps most essential, Melford has garnered the greatest respect from her peers throughout the experimental scene, chamber music, and jazz, whether progressive or tradition-minded. In the fall of 2017, saw the release of Handful of Keys, an album by the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra with Wynton Marcellus on which Melford joins fellow piano masters like Joey Alexander and Helen Sung. The collection includes a big band arrangement by Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra saxophonist Ted Nash of the snowy egret tune, The Strawberry. Myra is a true original, both as a composer and a player, Nash says. I have been a fan of hers for a long time, and I think this composition is the quintessence of Myra herself serious yet fun, and always completely surprising. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, Myra Melford. Hello, Myra. Hey, Craig. It's uh, really great to talk with you and to have you as a guest on my podcast today. 
Thank you for having me. A question that I ask every musician that I interview, because I'm always curious to know what everyone's origin story is, is who turned the light on for you? What turned you on to music? Wow, that's a good question. You know, I am, um, for as long as I can remember, I was interested in music. Uh, my earliest memories are of climbing up on the piano bench when I was two or three years old. And uh, and I maybe I was trying to imitate my older siblings who were taking piano lessons, but mm -hmm. I think mostly I was just making things up. And um, I think I've been doing that ever since in one way or another. Mm -hmm. Well, I think children have uh, a certain curiosity about about music and making different sounds. I, I know I uh, I see that with my granddaughter. Um, you know, she when she comes over to see us, she loves to uh, sit down and play our piano or um, she likes to, you know, come down and I'll you know, get her to play my trumpet or one day, uh, this was after I'd recently, I'd bought a drum set to use for rehearsals in our basement. And as soon as she saw it, she says, Oh, is that for me? <laughs> and, uh, you know, she's like five, well, she just turned six That's and, great. uh, and immediately was interested in all the different sounds of the, of the drums and the cymbals. And so it's, it's kind of, you know, something about, I think with children, they, they're drawn to it, but then kind of uh, drilling down a little bit, then who or what turned you on specifically to jazz music? That didn't happen until quite a bit later. Um, uh, and that was a little bit um, serendipitous because I was studying in college, I was studying environmental science at Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. Mm -hmm. And I decided I would spend the summer in Olympia rather than go back to my parents' house in Illinois. And I um, I saw a sign up in a local restaurant for jazz piano lessons. And um, I had grown up playing the blues and sort of Chicago boogie woogie style um, music along with classical music. Um, but I had never really listened to or studied jazz, but I knew it involved improvisation. And it just sounded like a fun way to get back to playing the piano after having taken a break for a while. And um, so that was probably the first thing um, was just enjoying those lessons. But Shortly after I started taking those lessons, I went to hear a concert by um, two Chicagoans and, uh, and someone from Michigan. Um, this was Leroy Jenkins on violin and Amina Claudine Myers on piano and Farona Klaff on drums. And I, this was unlike any of the jazz my teacher had been having me listen to. I didn't know what they were doing, but this light bulb went off over my head and I was like, that's what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to figure mm. out how I want to play the piano, how I want to improvise, and how to write music that allows me to do that. And mm -hmm. that, that was really, that was that moment. Yes, there's something, you know, I think that's very infectious about about uh, about the music. And when we hear it, uh, it, it gets under your skin and it just doesn't let go. I, right. think, uh, I think I've heard similar kinds of uh 
stories from others about how they, you know, discovered and, and got turned on to jazz. Well, you know, jazz, uh, you know, comes in a lot of different flavors. And I, you know, and I love all styles of jazz. And I knew when I was getting ready to retire that I wanted to fill my retirement with music. And I uh, subsequently, I formed uh, six different jazz groups that each one can kind of address all the different styles that I, I happen to like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so from your perspective, what is the essence of jazz across all of its various flavors and how is jazz different from other styles of music? Wow. That's a good question. I, I'm not sure I have the answer, but I can tell you what it is for me. It's um, it's music, well, what I love about jazz is the, the aspect of improvisation. And that's true about all the styles of music that I play, some of which might not be considered jazz, um, but that involve improvisation um, and that, you know, that excitement of, of making something spontaneous with other musicians. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think is very important for me in 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 that that really that's what I enjoy about jazz is mm-hmm. that you know that element of the unknown that element of surprise and the possibility you might discover a new thing about the piece of music you're playing either through what you play or how somebody else responds to you or what they play I just love you know that that the spontaneity and then you know, beyond that, um, that it that it that at least, you know, it has some reference to either American popular music, you know, the popular the American songbook or the blues. Um, but these things, you know, are then a little bit more stylistic for me mm-hmm, than, mm-hmm. than that element of improvisation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, when I used to, I used to teach jazz history and appreciation uh, at the college level. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, students would ask those hard questions about, you know, what, what really is making jazz maybe say unique. And I, I you know, one of the examples I used to cite was that it's like having an extemporaneous conversation with people who speak a similar language. Mm-hmm. And and we might have slightly different inflections in our language or the the slang or verbiage that we use. And we find that that sometimes impacts our own use of language or phrasing or slang or particular verbiage. And it's, uh, you know, just as it's it's really uh, interesting, you know, when you sit down. Uh, let's say on a Monday morning and uh, all of the uh, all the armchair quarterbacks get together and talk about the uh, football they watched over the weekend and how the conversation can rise to a particular crescendo and then again kind of fall, you know, an ebb and a flow. You know, and I say that jazz is like that because you, you're kind of uh, hovering around some sort of common denominator. And we could say that that is the tune that we're we're playing on but then everyone kind of brings an individual you know something to the conversation 
And uh, I think that's what makes it a very vibrant and exciting music. And that's different than, say, when, you know, if we have a string quartet that's going to play a Beethoven string quartet, they're going to try and adhere to the script, you know, unless they're the type of group that decides they want to alter Beethoven. And certainly there's groups like that, but but that's uh, a bit different than, than uh, other, other styles. And so I think that, you know, I agree with you 100 percent that that's certainly what makes it very vibrant and exciting of, of music. Uh, one of the things, though, that I, I always am very curious about, and that is that music that has been labeled jazz has been around for over a century. And throughout its history, jazz has had its ups and downs and rumors of its death have been gra greatly exaggerated. I think it's true to say that jazz is not central to American popular music today, yet it still exists, lives, and it thrives. Why and how has jazz been able to sustain itself over the past century? And concomitant with that, what is the major challenge of being a jazz artist in the 21st century? Well, let me address the first part of your question. Um, I think that I think one of the reasons it's su survived is because it's always changing and adapting. Mm -hmm. And uh, it I, I like to quote John Swed, who wrote in his book, Jazz 101, that that we've reached a, a state of permanent diversity in jazz where all these styles can exist at the same time. So if you're walking down the street in the village in New York, you might hear a Dixieland band at one venue. You might hear a bop or a post-bop group. You might hear a, a, a big band. You might hear, um, you know, and then all kinds of contemporary mm -hmm. uh, jazz, uh, small and large group, um, which at this point is very diverse. So, I mean, and, and also very personal because so many... I think we're at least the, the the kind of cohort that I was in in New York and that I'm still part of is is it places a lot of value on original compositions and it's less about playing interpreting standards. So it's all very individual and personal. Um, and but I think it survived because it 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 is able to change with the times and keep expanding. For me, the important thing about a, a definition of jazz has to has to be inclusive, you know, and 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 be willing to say all of these types of music um, are jazz and they're valuable, uh, and that I I don't like it when it's reduced to just one or two elements and that's jazz. Um, what are the challenges? I think a lot of the challenge these days is a monetary one. Frankly, it's not you know as you point out, it's still part of uh you know it plays an important role in in american music today but it's not uh it doesn't have the kind of uh market value that it maybe did in its heyday and um and and so so the real challenge is, is how do we support all the many many great jazz musicians that are in the world today and continue to come up through good jazz programs mm -hmm. 
Um, and I think one of the reasons the music is surviving is because so many people are are willing to jump into the do-it-yourself, the DIY thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as much as I'm, my generation might see the internet as um, not a detriment, but as, but as something that is really taken over from the record company as a way of putting out music, you know, the upside of that is that people with ingenuity and, and a willingness, to, you know, to to make it happen can make it happen on their own and distribute it through the Internet. Um, on the other hand, the fact that we don't have any kind of industry support for that in the way of labels and and so on, it's it's pretty challenging, I think to make a living at it but it's probably always it's been challenging forever so this may not be that different i don't might, know might be not be anything really new yeah. It, yeah it's kind of like well i read an interesting uh article one time that tried to categorize uh music by its uh economic base and that so pop music is very is commercial and it's supported by uh, corporate entities and uh, and very well funded. Jazz, like classical music, like the opera, relies on patronage or the academy. Right. You know, and, and when you talk about jazz programs in in colleges and universities and high schools and so forth, uh you know, that's probably been one of the big changes that we've seen occur over the last 75 years, where there's been more jazz in schools. And of course, they, that helps to preserve the art form in, uh, in that way. And then there was uh, the third category was folk music, which continues to exist and survive because of its oral tradition. And it, it, I thought that was kind of an interesting uh a way to look at things. And uh, I think you're absolutely right. The, the do-it-yourself kind of approach to things. I see a lot of musicians uh, not only doing that with their, you know, self-promotion, using the internet and, and, the, and, the, uh, and also finding a way to put their music out there uh, with streaming and, 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 and so forth. So it's, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword and perhaps we've always, always had it in some way. Uh, also how many artists I've talked to over the last couple of years that have produced recordings uh, from um, uh, Kickstarter or GoFundMe, you know, again, relying on that patronage, but they're obviously finding it or they wouldn't be, you know, uh, making these things. So it's uh, uh, interesting to me to, uh, to f the ingenuity with which people are uh, approaching survival uh, mm -hmm. as artists, because we are compelled to continue making art, w whether it makes us a really great living or not, you know, right. and, 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 you know, it's just something that yeah, well, like Arnold Schoenberg said, a composer must. And and I think, you know, when you're a musician, you must. You you just can't, hey, I can't anyway, hang it up. Sure. Uh, right. Yeah, well, so anyway, speaking of recordings, you have a recording that was released this past April entitled For the Love of Fire and Water. Would you please talk about this new recording? 
including uh, the musicians uh, on the recording and the impetus and structure of the recording or any other salient details that would be of interest to my listeners? Sure. Well, this project started a little bit serendipitously as well. Um, I uh, I was playing a week-long uh, series of concerts at a venue called The Stone in New York City, mm-hmm. which is now part of the, the new school. And um, I the structure of that week is usually that you play five nights in a row and each night you present a different project. And for four of the nights, I presented projects that I was working with, either collective groups like Trio M with Mark Dresser and Matt Wilson, or my Snowy Egret band, my quintet at the time, um, that kind of thing. So it was a, a like a repertoire that I had written for a specific group of musicians or, you know, people that I worked with uh, regularly. And then I thought for one night, it would be really fun to just put together a group of people I've, I've, that I've played with individually in different situations, but that I've, that has never played all together before. And I put together this band with Mary Halverson on guitar, uh, Ingrid Laubrock on saxophones, Tamika Reed on cello, and Susie Ibarra on drums. And my initial thought was that we would just improvise. Maybe I'd create kind of a roadmap of orchestration, like we'll have a duo and then we'll have a trio, and but we won't specify what we're going to play. We'll just improvise. And then I realized, well, I have some music I had just started to write. It wasn't finished yet, but maybe there's a way I could put together a kind of roadmap of s- some directions for improvisations, um, as well as some written thematic material that I was trying to develop. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. We had a very successful first concert and I just felt there was a chemistry there that I wanted to continue working with. And so I had an opportunity over the pandemic to develop that suite of music. Um, and we were able to record it once, you know, once it was safe to be in the studio again together in the summer of 2021. Um and it was at the I've been very interested in the artwork of uh, an American sort of post abstract uh, expressionist painter. And actually, he works in a lot of media. Um, and that's Cy Twombly. And um, he I, I took a series of drawings that he made in 1981 called Gaeta set, and then in parentheses for the love of fire and water. So that's where mm-hmm. the title from the recording comes from. Mm-hmm. And it's a series of 10 drawings that he made um, while in Southern Italy in, the, in this town of Gaeta. And I happened to visit there last fall when I was doing some work in Europe and could imagine him being sort of on the hills overlooking the Mediterranean and seeing the play of sunlight on water, which he does in such a beautiful way, but it's quite abstract. But something I love about his work is that there's it's got so much energy in it. It's very vital, it's very gestural, and it. I'm a very kinesthetic pianist. I don't know if you've ever seen me play, but I really get into it. And there's something about his work that I I just felt immediately that I wanted to respond to through initially playing the piano. And then I thought, well, maybe I can expand this and create um, 
pieces that allow for each musician to either respond to his work or to my work responding to his work, where they have a lot of freedom to express themselves improvisationally, but where I can structure kind of the flow and the pacing and the different kinds of dynamic and textural areas we could get into. So that's that's really what I was trying to do. And very loosely mapping those to this series of drawings. It's, it's mm -hmm. not meant to be a literal translation as much as a dialogue. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that your music uh, on this recording is perhaps more texturally oriented as opposed to say melodically or rhythmically oriented? Yes, especially on uh, that recording, um, I was really interested in, you know, I teach composition at the University of California, mm -hmm. and many of the students are not coming from jazz at all, but rather from contemporary classical music, or the ethnomusicology students are coming from various traditions of music from around the world. And I've been really interested in finding ways to bring all these people together to make music. and. Mm -hmm. One of the ways has been to um, to allow for the different timbres and textures of the instrument, the timbres of the instruments they play to to be important, as well as to find ways to improvise that don't require a jazz background. Mm -hmm. So maybe this is a little bit more like American experimentalism, in I a see. sense. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so I, I wanted to really then take what I was learning by doing that here into a a group of musicians who I know are fantastic jazz players, but who have a wide range of vocabulary on their instruments and can really, they don't, it doesn't have to be jazz oriented for them to find a way to have a very interesting conversation mm -hmm. as, as mm -hmm. put it earlier. So that's really what I'm exploring as a new ways of structuring pieces for, I'm, I, I guess I, I really think about myself as an improviser first and then as a jazz musician. You know, my background is in jazz and I love that music and I love to play pieces that groove and have it great chord changes and, and beautiful melodies, but that's not all I'm interested in. So I think mm -hmm. you're right in that I was able to explore some of these other interests in this project. Well, you know, I mean, the whole idea of, you know, when you mention a, a post-abstract expressionist painter, uh, and I I remember when, uh, it, both in when I taught music preach and dealt primarily with Western classical music and that stream, and then when I taught jazz and when we get into the avant-garde, and I would I would try to explain to students because you know most of the students I taught had no had little or no musical background at all, and I would I would try to use the analogy of of uh, of artwork. I would say, well, you know, you can have a painting that is a portrait. In other words, it's a picture of someone, or you can have a painting that is a a seascape or a landscape that is a picture of, you know, a, a chunk of land or the, or the ocean or, or a lake or a stream. And you can, or you can have a still life, which is uh, a picture of various recognizable objects in a particular setting. But then you can also have paintings that are none of those things, but rather where the artist is, focusing on 
shapes, colors, and the interactions between shapes and colors. And in the case of some painters, the texture uh, as it might be related by what it can be implied by brush strokes, or even sometimes like in the case of Jackson Pollock, the actual thickness of the paint on the canvas. And so therefore in music, we can do the same sort of thing. We are, are you know, I would give examples of, of uh, you know, the thinnest texture that we might think of would be a violinist playing a single string with their bow. And then we thicken that texture, maybe by playing two strings. And then we thicken it further by having two violinists. And so anyway, try to kind of put that across. Yeah. And I, I would try to describe that because uh, I think when people listen to music, they certainly perceive the beat. They perceive, uh, you know, uh, time, and and they and they recognize a melodic line. Uh, they may or may not know the correct lyrics, <laughs> but but you know, at least they recognize the melody. They might even recognize a particular chord progression or something that sounds familiar. Of course, there's a lot of commonalities, like in popular music of other types of chord progressions, but what I tried to unearth for my students was the juicy goodness of listening to the interaction between the instruments and the textures of the music and the timbres and the colors, because I feel like that mo a lot of people miss that. They don't, they don't, unless they really work at it, they don't, they don't get into that. And I, you know, in listening to your music, you know, I, I was very drawn to, you know, the textures and the timbres. And that's why I asked the question initially that I did, if that was your intent and orientation. And I, I think that's a, a great aspect of music that uh, hopefully more and more people will discover. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think because there's been such an emphasis on, on timbre and spectralism and you know new technologies making sounds and all of this stuff um i think you know the students i work with are very attuned to being able to sort of tune in and listen on that level and um i think um i think that's a way that the music is changing you know both mm -hmm. jazz as well as you know new music we might call sure, it sure 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 i think so well I'm interested to know about you. Tell us a bit about your creative process. What inspires you to write? Well, I guess a lot of it does come from, well, I, I think the first part, the first answer is that I've never been someone who is very, who is taken to interpreting other people's music. I like to play the music of my peers and that kind of thing. And some of my mentors that I've gotten to play, but I realized, you know, when I was about a freshman in high school, that becoming a classical musician was, I love music so much, but I didn't want to be playing other people's music. And, okay. um, and the same thing happened to me after I got into jazz once the sort of like, Oh, I can improvise on, on this music. Uh, and I love that, the excitement of that. But then after a while, it was like, well, I want to write my own music to improvise on um, rather than interpreting what other people have done. 
And so um, I think that's the first thing. The second thing is that um, I'm interested in composing for musical personalities and the kind of language or lexicon that individual musicians create. Um, mm -hmm. And and so that really inspires me, like with Snowy Egret, to get to write for a cornet player like Ron Miles um, or a bass player like Sto Mutakishi or a I mean, all those guys, guitarists like Liberty Elman and the, the drummer Taishan Sori, they each had such strong musical personalities and sound on their instrument. And that really inspires me like, how can I create something that will allow these people to express themselves as they truly are and yet you know, bring a common focus so that we can all play together? Um, so that's that's another aspect. And probably the third aspect is that I'm very inspired by extra musical art forms, literature, painting, architecture, sculpture, all those kinds of things. And I, I, I guess, you know, it's not just with Twombly that I find myself doing this. It's with all kinds of artwork that I, I want to have a dialogue across media and and respond to the way something looks or feels or sounds in the case of poetry or literature through mu with music, you know? I You know, I, this kind of leads me to another question. I was going to ask if this happens to you because it does to me. When I see see something, it could be a painting. It could be a, it could be a nature scene. It could be... Um, a person that I happen to see out walking, walking uh, down the street or something. Uh, do you get a, some sort of a uh, musical stimulus? Do you have a musical thought that you might associate with seeing those things? I mean, we think about, you know, uh, one of our seven intelligences is musical thinking. And so I'm wondering if, if as musicians, sometimes we express ourselves in our musical thinking by hearing a, a musical idea when we're stimulated by something we see visually. And I suppose we could even expand that to taste or any of the senses. Yeah. I think for me, there's it's, it's two parts. Sometimes, uh, or there's two scenarios. Sometimes I, I will actually hear um, a melodic fragment or a uh, a, more like a shape of pitches or a rhythm. Uh, and so uh, in, in other words, some kind of material that's actually already musical mm -hmm. or already music. And sometimes it's a physical impulse, almost like a kinesthetic, like when I say that, when I see that, or when I think about that um, piece of work, I want to... I, you know, I think I'm, I think I'm, I must have been a dancer in another lifetime because a lot of the way I approach playing the piano is very physical and it sometimes starts with a kinesthetic impulse and then the resulting sound kicks in the, you know, that kind of feedback loop between sound and, and physical gesture. But for me, sometimes it's, it's more of a physical gesture than a sonic, uh, you know, thought or statement. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I, I've, you know, I've always been interested in composers, uh, how they, you know, what might stimulate their musical thinking. And I, while you were speaking, I was thinking about uh, the composer, Michael Torkey, who uh, is, uh, he's a Wisconsin guy. He's actually, he's from, from the community right next to the, where I live. And I remember going to a lecture that he did one time when the Milwaukee Symphony was playing his Jasper Symphony. And he talked about how he used uh, stones, Jasper being an example, as his inspiration. He would find that he could begin to hear or he would develop ideas, you know, uh, by seeing photographs of these various stones. He showed us the book that he had of all these semi-precious stones. I thought, you know, that was that was kind of interesting. And I I I, I often think, uh, you know, in my own experience, when I see a particular object and, and how I'll just get a musical a snippet of an idea. It might be a fully orchestrated, huge kind of a thing, or it might just be simple. And I'm I, I'm just happy to know maybe I'm not the only one <laughs> that yeah. I, I'm still sane. But uh, yeah, those are kind of interesting. But um, uh, Myra, thinking back to your most recent musical inspiration, when you had that inspiration, what came first? Melody, rhythm, a set of chord changes, uh, a lyric or a mood? Well, my most recent series of compositions was written largely last spring for mm -hmm. the same quintet, the Fire and Water Quintet. Mm -hmm. And in this case, I was uh, expanding our repertoire so that we could have enough material for two sets for a concert tour we were doing. <clears throat> and I was missing some of the melodic, harmonic, rhythmic writing that I've always done. Um, more, you know, just before this band, I was writing for the 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 project Snowy Egret, which I mentioned a few minutes ago. Mm -hmm. And that music is largely, you know, uh, built of these more traditional basic building blocks of music that we've been talking about. And um, I wanted to bring that back in and insert these compositions in between some of the more open improvising in the suite on the record. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> For that music, um, I was still inspired by the drawings, but I was trying to find other ways of, of engaging with them other than just the textural, timbral, gestural. And um, I'm trying to think now, like, you know, I, I'm not very good at remembering my process. It's almost like I go into some other state and oh here's this idea and then there's that idea and maybe I can put those together but so sometimes it's a melody as you suggest sometimes it's um uh um sometimes it's I might discover some harmonies that I really like just you know playing at the piano or improvising on my own sometimes it's it's a it's it's a kind of rhythmic uh, impulse that I really want to capture and then later add melody and harmony to. Um, but what I usually do is start with a small idea, whatever it is, a melodic fragment, a set of pitches, um, which could be part of a 12-tone row or could be something more diatonic. 
uh, or polytonal. And, um, and then I create um, as many variations, as many permutations as I can through traditional ways of working, transposing, uh, inverting, playing them backwards, um, expanding and contracting the intervals, expanding and contracting the rhythmic uh, durations, this kind of thing. And, um, and then I have this whole set of small ideas from all of these permutations. And I sit down and I start going through those and identifying the ones I like. And then I start to say, well, I like this one and that one. Do they go together? If not, can I tweak them so so they go together? Or, um, or you know, I just start finding ways to put put the material together. And how that works is still quite mysterious to me. <laughs> okay. But it's but it's but it's based on my sensibility, my ear, my mm -hmm. feeling about it. You know. Yeah, well, it's it's not, you know, composition is as much affective as it is cognitive. Sure. I mean, I, th I think we have to accept that it's not always, uh, you know, a conscious process as much as it is you go with your gut. Yeah, it's intuitive, <laughs> and, I think, you know, in, at its best for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, having said something about having all these different little ideas, do you do you uh, keep a, a sketchbook of ideas? of different heads or vamps or, or other musical ideas that you draw upon later? Yes. Okay. And, and I do the same thing with song titles. So oh. I keep, keep a, cause you know, I, I think for me, I, I, I titling a piece can be challenging. And I think I like looking for poetic images or interesting se sequence of words and that kind of thing that, um, that I either can develop into a piece or I'll be writing a piece and I'll be looking for a title and I'll look through my, you know, my database of possible titles. And suddenly I'll think, ah, that's the title for this piece. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, at one time I had the idea of uh, titling pieces after various diseases after looking through a, a medical dictionary and i and i i kind of rejected that because i thought maybe that might be a downer for someone who's suffering from that particular malady right. in my audience you know so right. i've, I've right. rejected that because i like to try to keep things positive you know right. Uh, right. Uh, but yeah you're right trying to find uh, ideas and then you know i guess we could always do sometimes like the classical composers do we just say well this is opus one number one you know yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or, or borrow from one's own earlier writing yeah like this is an interesting idea i i could imagine developing it in a completely different way than i have before you know that kind mm -hmm. of thing so yeah. i this idea of having a data bank or a database of either musical ideas or um or titles or whatever is is really helpful. Sometimes I'll come up with an idea and it'll be months before I can hear how that actually can be developed into a piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and I, I don't know if you're like me, but it seems like inspiration always comes at an inconvenient time. You yeah. know, I'm in the shower or I'm driving somewhere or whatever. Yeah, I think it's a, not an uncommon sort of event. Oh. And then you're like, oh, my God, how can I capture this before it goes away? Exactly, exactly.
Well, I want to switch gears just for a minute. Uh, you are also an educator, as, as you mentioned, you're teaching at uh, University of California. And uh, uh, what do you tell your students who are aspiring toward a career in music? How, well, I was going to say what, yeah, I mean, how, how do you advise or what advice do you give to your students that are aspiring toward a career in music? Well, I say, first of all, you have to really want this because mm -hmm. it's not necessarily going to be easy. It may not bring you the same kind of remuneration that a, a different kind of career could bring you. So I think the one thing, one thing you really need is the passion and the love and the, you know, a, a strong sense of, of this being right for you. Like you have to do this more or less. Mm -hmm. um, and secondly, then do you know that you have to, it's not just about making music. You have to develop business skills um, and be aware of that and be be at nowadays be self-promoting and be creative about how to put your music out there. Um, I think those are kind of along and this is like the given is that you you develop your music and you develop your technique and your skill mm -hmm. and your mm -hmm. and all of that stuff. But beyond that, I think it takes a real drive and passion and and a real uh to be savvy about, you know, the, the economic reality and how to make, and creative about how to make that work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, I kind of want to just uh, uh, kind of ask a corollary to that question. And I want to uh, introduce that with just telling you a little something about myself. In the last few years of my full-time teaching career, I taught a course. I love teaching. It was called creative thinking and problem solving. Now it was not a music course per se. I taught it as part of a program that we instituted uh, for uh, a, a, a bachelor's degree for people, for adults who had maybe started college and had maybe a year or two of college under their belts, but had never completed a degree. And so I, I volunteered when they asked for somebody to, to teach a, a class for that. I thought, well, that sounds interesting. I want to want to give that a go. And what I loved about teaching creative thinking and problem solving was giving students actual exercises they could they could do to stimulate their creative thinking. One of those was I would put a bunch of uh, objects unrelated to each other in a box. And I'd say, just reach in without looking and pull two items out. Now invent something new with those two items, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and that came actually from, a, from an example I read, you know, like our cell phone. Our cell phone is a combination of a, a telephone and a computer. And, uh, and so two things that already existed independent of each other. And then someone got the idea, let's find a way to combine them into something new because you know, so many new things are really just just combinations of old things. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, in your teaching, uh, not only as a composer, but as a uh, musician uh, and, and a performer, what approaches do you use to help your students prepare for their future? Well, you know, 
I I think this will partly address your question because I um, was thinking as you were talking about your creative problem solving class that I, I, I started teaching a new course a couple of years ago, right before the pandemic hit um, on improvisation across disciplines. Mm. Um, it was meant to be open to any undergraduates across the Berkeley campus. And with the idea that we would study through the lens of music, uh, musical improvisation, but also many other fields and disciplines, what it takes, what are the skills that an improviser has? What is it that you need uh, to be able to improvise in music, but how does improvisation work in business or in design or in engineering or in medicine or in law or in as, as well as the other art forms. And so it was a very similar kind of approach where we took, we, we had guests come in and each guest would talk about improvisation, however that related to their field, and then, and then brought in some exercises or activities for the students to experience improvisation through their field. And at the end of the, by the end of the year, they were all able to take these ideas, kind of principles or a kind of theory of improvisation and apply it to their own field or to a special project that they had to, you know, some sort of problem that they had to solve. So it's very similar. And I think, so I think I, I'm really interested in having students, first of all, realize that we're all improvising all the time, mm -hmm. um, but that there are certain things depending upon the field. And of course, we're talking about music now that we have that there are certain skills and technical abilities that we have to have to be able to express ourselves improvisationally. Um, but the ability to kind of think on one's feet and to make something beautiful or moving um, out of nothing, so to speak, you know, that at least hasn't been predetermined is is a great skill to develop and um that is one of the things that i that i enjoy the most working with them on of course we work on all of the other aspects of being a performer and composer and arranger in terms of craft and and technique but that that sort of you know it, and it's not just improvisation it's it's creative problem solving as you as you call it you know, I, I failed to mention that when I taught this class, it was not a music course, but it ended up being very music based because yeah. of my background. I mean, I couldn't I couldn't avoid it. But there's uh, I happen to think about uh, one of the books I use as, used as a text was a book by uh, Tina Selig, who is the uh, at the D school design school at Stanford. And uh, I got onto her book because she was on NPR one day. Uh, uh, this is right after her book had come out and she was being interviewed about how creativity can be taught, which of course I heard that and it just hooked me right in. I got her book immediately, read it, thought my students will need to have this as well. But I always love some of the catchphrases that uh, she uses with her students at Stanford in that we fly, let's see, we're building the plane while we fly it and fail big and fail often. And because, you know, we don't win or lose, we win or learn, right? We always learn from our mistakes. And then she mentioned, there's a wonderful, I cannot remember what it's called, Japanese art form, where they create objects out of things that have been broken. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, Wabi Sabi, maybe or something. Yeah I, yeah, I can't remember the name of it, but it's it's the idea that there's still beauty and and something that is uh, worth saving, even in an object that is broken. Mm, maybe that's and, a little different. Yeah. Yeah, but anyway, I and I and I thought, well, you know, in some ways, teaching this course was a no-brainer because you hit the nail on the head when you were talking about, you know, playing music, writing music, arranging music is creative problem solving and in jazz it's problem solving on the go we truly are building the plane while we're flying it and what's the name of her book um let me see if i have it here on my shelf uh, oh i don't see it must be on one of my other but i don't remember uh but tina t-i-n-a selig s-e-l-i-g Okay. is her name and she oh, is wow. uh, at the design school at stanford yeah okay good yeah you could probably find it online in a heartbeat okay good thank and, you and uh yeah i thought her i thought her ideas and and her approach to how they teach design was uh was very applicable to so many things well you know i i, I want to shift gears again kind of as, as we're getting down to the end of our interview uh Myra, you have had for a number of years, many different musical projects going on simultaneously in reflecting varied musical styles and influences. Would you please talk about your, your musical interests and how you find balance for yourself between and among all these various projects? Gosh, well, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I do find balance, but I try. Um, I guess I, I yeah, I, I, I don't know how to say much about the or, origin of my many interests. I, I just, a lot of different things inspire me. And it's not so much that I, I want to play all of these different kinds of music as I want to synthesize some element of them or what's inspiring to me in through through my own music making process and and um and and find then ensemble vehicles to realize these musics and a lot of it does come down to that there are so many interesting players on the scene and i i love that each each person i play with or each ensemble that i play with brings out something a little bit different in my music um and or in my playing. And um, I, I think that's why I've always done so many different things, um, sometimes simultaneously, sometimes serially. But um, uh, how I balance it, I don't know, you know, I guess by kind of being very focused on what I'm doing in the moment that I'm doing that, and then kind of being able to put that aside while I do something else. Mm -hmm. Um, even though I think on a on an intuitive level or subconscious level, I'm trying to make connections or uh, I learned this from that. Oh, that might be an interesting thing I could try in a different way with this band. You know, mm -hmm. so it's always this kind of um, synergy or feeding back and forth between the different things that I do so that it's a way for me to make sense out of them. But then I realize that they actually do inform each other. Yeah, I, you know, I had a, I, I explained to a student one time, I said, I have to think of myself not as two sides of a coin, but many sides of a die. Mm. You know, I'm the same die, but I might have, you know, six different sides. 
And, and I guess that's depending on which side pops up, you know, is, is, is how and where I go. And uh, because I, my musical interests, I mean, I love modern music. I, I love early music, you know, uh, during the pandemic, I decided to, to uh, learn to play the, uh, the Renaissance cornetto. Uh, just simply to open up that literature to 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 me, because previous to that, as a trumpet player, you know, I we, we could only go about as far as the early Baroque. You know? So right. now this added another 50, 60 years worth of repertoire. But, uh, you know, and then I, I just love, you know, avant-garde and modern music. And I love R&B and I love blues and jazz and folk and, and country. So anyway, you know, uh, my students, I had a student one time, me back in the day, remember when we used to have iPods and, uh, and he, and I, he or she, I don't remember which now, and she took a look at my iPod and she says, Dr. Hurst, he said, a lot of different people live in there, don't they? And I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> what a wonderful way to put it. Yeah. Well, you remind me of one thing I wanted to mention to you. If you don't know about it, there's a wonderful film about Ennio Morricone that came out, um, just within the last few months um, okay. in Europe. Um, I think it's an Italian film company, but um, uh, there's English, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it, it's done in many languages because all the various people they interview who worked with him in one way or another or were inspired by him were from all over the world. But I, I learned something about him which is that he, you know, was a trumpet player and that he came from this very omnivorous kind of interest in music, just as you're talking about. And it's a fabulous film if you get a chance to see it. Oh, I'll have to look for it. It's but called course... Ennio. Yeah. Oh, it would say again. It's called en Ennio, his Ennio. first. Name. Okay. Okay. I'll look for it. Yeah. yeah. I would think, you know, a film composer in particular would have to have a much broader vista of, of music under their belt simply because they're called upon, you know, you know, sometimes they don't know for sure what the, what they're going to be faced with until they see the film. And uh, I've, I've always enjoyed, uh, you know, Marconi's music over the years. I mean, he's written some, I mean, Gabriel's oboe is just one of the most beautiful melodies. And, uh, and I just uh, have always enjoyed it. So I'll have to look for that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's really inspiring. Okay, well, that's great. And my listeners now know about it too, so they can look for it. Well, now that um, For the Love of Fire and Water is out, what's next? Do you have any new recording projects planned or in the works? Yes, I am. Um, well, for one thing, I'm I'm about to take that quintet on the road in the U.S. As I mentioned, we already toured in Europe, but we're doing a few dates in the U.S. next weekend. And right after that, we'll go into the studio to make our second record, which will be the music that I wrote last spring for the group. Okay. Which is kind of a companion volume to, to the first suite, um, the first record we put out. And then I've got a lot of other music that I'm working on also under this larger umbrella of, of responding to Cy Twombly's work. So I'm working on a solo installation piece for myself um, about that. I'm working on a duo with a bass player from Paris. Um, and then I'm writing two new sets of music for trios 
that I'll premiere next June and we'll record both of those. One is for a trio I play with um, Mia Masaoka and Zena Parkins, which we call MZM. And then the other is will be a trio with Michael Formanak and Chess Smith. Um, and then beyond that, I have ideas for an octet. I, I have one piece already written, um, but I'm gonna try to come up with some more music to, to make a record with that group. But you know how where to find the money and the time to do all this? I'm not quite sure, but that's those are the things I'm working on. Well, it sounds like you've got plenty to keep you busy. Yes, <laughs> Myra, is there is there anything else you'd like to to add or tell my audience that we haven't talked about? Not really. I just it's been a pleasure speaking with you and and getting to know your background as well, and and finding we have so many things in common. It's really well. It's been a pleasure for me as well. And uh, I have to tell you, I started doing this podcast during the, the the pandemic because all my rehearsals and gigs were were shut down. And I had a need to connect with other musicians. And so I thought, well, maybe this would be a way to do it. And it clicked. Yeah, and, I've, and, and I have met so many wonderful people and been so inspired. And, and Myra, I want to thank you for taking time to talk with me today. And uh, wish you all the best with what I'm sure is going to be a continued successful musical future. Thank you so much. And I'll look forward to hearing more of your podcast. Well, very good. Thank you. And you have a great rest of your day. You too, Craig. Thank you. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. My Discovery Composer of the Week is American Howard Hansen. Hansen was born in Wahoo, Nebraska in 1896 and died in Rochester, New York in 1981. He studied at Luther College, Wahoo, with Percy Getchius at the Institute of Musical Art and at Northwestern University, where he was an assistant teacher in 1915 to 1916. Subsequently, subsequently, he was a theory and composition teacher at the College of the Pacific in California from 1916 to 1919 and became Dean of the Conservatory of Fine Arts in 1919. During his time in California, Hansen wrote his first important compositions, including the Concerto di Camera and California Forest Play of 1920 which won the Rome Prize in 1921. Hansen became the first American winner of the prize to take up residence in Rome, and during his three years in Italy, he studied orchestration with Respighi and the work of the great Italian visual artists. These experiences were to play a crucial role in Hansen's later compositions. His post-1921 compositions frequently feature lush, Respighi-like orchestrations, and his variation form work, Mosaics, was acknowledged by the composer as having been directly influenced by his study of Italian mosaics over 35 years before. Back in the United States in 1924, Hansen was appointed director of the Eastman School of Music, Rochester, a post he held until 1964. He built the institution into one of the finest university schools of music in the Americas, broadening its curriculum, 
improving its orchestras, and attracting outstanding faculty members. Among Hansen's composition students were Beeson, Bergsma, and Menon. In 1964, Hansen founded the Institute of American Music at the Eastman School, making a substantial financial contribution to help the Institute in meeting its goal of publishing and disseminating American music and providing for research in the history of 20th century styles. Hansen was also deeply involved with national uh, music organizations, such as the National Association of Schools of Music, the Music Teachers National Association, for whom he served as the president from 1930 to 1931, and the Music Educators National Conference. He was also a founder and president of the National Music Council. His addresses at conferences of these organizations frequently dealt with advocacy issues in the performing arts. Among Hansen's numerous awards were 36 American honorary degrees, membership of the Swedish Royal Academy of Music, a Pulitzer Prize for Symphony No. 4, the Ditson Award, and the George Foster Peabody Award. He was elected to the National Institute of Arts and Letters in 1935 and to the Academy of the American Academy and Institute of Arts and Letters in 1979. Hansen was also active for five decades as a conductor, making his American debut in 1924, directing the New York Symphony Orchestra in the premiere of his symphonic poem, North and West, at the invitation of Damrosh. He subsequently conducted widely in both the United States and Europe, his association particularly strong with the Boston Symphony Orchestra, for which he wrote the Elegy and the Symphony No. 2. As a conductor, Hansen especially featured American compositions and was an early champion of William Grant Still and John Alden Carpenter. Hansen has generally been considered a neo-romantic composer influenced by Grieg and Sibelius, due in part to the success of the Second Symphony. However, he also took at times a more abstract approach to musical structure, as in the mosaics and in the Concerto for Piano and Orchestra in G, Opus 36 notable for its prevalence of short thematic fragments and traces of jazz and Tin Pan Alley. His multi-movement works also tend to be thematically cyclical. Hansen's combination of quotations from Gregorian chant and little-known chorales, sometimes biting bitonal harmonies and driving motor rhythms, proved highly applicable to the concert band a medium he explored from the mid-50s to the 1970s in such works as Chorale and Alleluia and Dies Natalis II. His frequently performed Serenade for Flute, Harp, and Strings, Opus 35, and the Fantasy for Clarinet and Chamber Orchestra of 1978 combine transparent textures with melodic and harmonic touches of Impressionism, 
all Hansen's works display rhythmic vitality, frequently using tonally based ostinatos and sensitivity toward timbral combination. Hansen was the author of articles in professional journals, particularly related to music education and support for the performing arts in America. He contributed regularly to the Rochester Times Union until the mid-1970s and wrote Music in Contemporary American Civilization, published in 1951. His most important publication, however, was Harmonic Materials of Modern Music, Resources of the Tempered Scale, published in New York in 1960, a seminal work in what would later be termed pitch class set theory. The All Music Guide lists one recording of his ballet, Nymphs and Satyr, two recordings of, mu of his music for symphonic band, three recordings of his chamber music, 13 recordings of his choral music, six recordings of his concerti, 16 recordings of his works for keyboard, and one recording of his opera, Marymount, and one recording of a suite from the opera, seven recordings of his symphonies, and 12 recordings of his other orchestral works. In my show notes is a link to a performance of Hansen's rhythmic variations on two ancient hymns performed by the Nashville Symphony Orchestra, directed by Kenneth Schumerhorn. That wraps episode number 116. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances, are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, I'll be interviewing Toronto-based singer-songwriter Julian Taylor. We will be discussing at length his new album, Beyond the Reservoir, released just this past October. Other upcoming interviews include New York City-based jazz vocalist Nicole Zaratis, New York City-based trumpet and trombone player Nick Vianis, and Nashville-based Celtic harpist, singer and composer Karen Ballou of the band The Deer's Cry. So don't touch that dial. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at uwm.edu. So until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.